we spend the bulk of our time on Sunday mornings uh, for this moment here where we open up God's word and we uh, flip to a, a book in the Bible and we simply read and explain and apply what the Bible has to say. It's a pretty normal and somewhat unexciting kind of thing. It lacks the, the, the glitz and the glamour. We don't, don't have kind of fireworks and smoke screens and, and backdrops, right? All we do is this kind of ancient old practice of opening up this printed book, reading it, explaining it, and applying it. But in doing so, we do believe that there's some spectacular things that are happening. Right? There might not be the kind of visual fireworks that are popping out in front of our eyes, but we trust that God's word is doing that kind of explosive work in our hearts. The Lord has said that his word brings life. And we believe that. We believe that. That's why we spend 30 on a good Sunday, 45 on a less than normal Sunday, and 50 to 55 minutes on a regular Sunday just hearing from the Lord's word. And we'll do that again this morning. Don't time me as we do this, this sermon this morning. And this morning we, we saw a new sermon series through the book of Micah, the Old Testament prophetic book of Micah. So we've been in Matthew uh, for several months this year. Before that, we ended last year in Colossians. And now we've flipped back to the Old Testament book of Micah. And we do so because we believe that God's people need to hear the entire counsel of God's word, right? We need to hear from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need to hear from different genres, from the narrative of, of the accounts of Jesus' life in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, uh, to the epistles of Paul, of Ephesians and Colossians, uh, to the, the, the historical books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, to the prophetic books of Isaiah and Ezekiel and even the smaller prophetic books of Jonah and Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk. And so this morning we find ourselves in one of these minor prophets. Minor not because it's less important than any other prophets, but minor because it's a smaller book, a seven chapter book, which over the next seven weeks we'll work through. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to the book of Micah? And because this book doesn't get a lot of airplay, you might need the table of contents to locate it. Micah is right after Jonah in the Old Testament. And so if you just kind of flip past Isaiah and Ezekiel, those kind of bigger books, sooner or later you will land at Micah. And this morning we'll be in Micah chapter 1. I'll read and then we'll explain and apply God's word. Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? 
Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. I tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Bethlehem. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'anan do not come out. The lamentation of Bethesel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marath wait anxiously for good because a disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the, seed, the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Axib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will, bring, I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delights. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Those are some verses that have some interesting names and some interesting concepts. But here's what I think is the main point of Micah chapter 1, the main point of our passage this morning. Tear down the idols in your life before God comes and tears you down for worshiping them. This is God's message to the people of, of Israel and Judah. It's God's message to us this morning. Tear down the idols in your life before God comes and tears you down for worshiping them. As we walk through this passage this morning, we'll arrange our thoughts around two questions. Number one, what does idolatry evoke from God? We see that in verses one through seven. And number two, can anyone escape God's judgment? We see that in verses eight through 16. Point number one, what does idolatry evoke from God, draw out from him? And number two, can anyone escape God's judgment? Point number one, what does idolatry evoke from God? We begin this book being given something of a preface some introductory information about the author and about the setting and about the recipients. We learn in verse 1 that this book is from Micah of Moresha. Moresha is a town to the southwest of Jerusalem in the land of Judah. It's a real place that really existed where Micah, a real person, really lived. I think it serves to remind us that this book in our hands is not some mythical collection of fairy tales. It doesn't tell us of what happened once upon a time in Never Neverland. No, there's a historical authenticity to it. 
It includes actual locations and actual people. The people and places in this book are real and the events are true. We find this same emphasis on the historical detail as we read of the timeline in which Micah ministered. We read that it was during the days of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, the three consecutive kings in Judah who reigned during the eighth century BC. Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, served as a prophet during their time, a time when Assyria was on the outside, threatening God's people as they swept through the Mediterranean region, conquering kingdom after kingdom, and a time of internal problems as well, as God's people increasingly turned from God and trusted in their own wealth or skill or enterprise or in the help of other gods or other nations. Into this milieu of outward pressure and inward perversion, Micah is raised up to remind people about who's most important, the Lord. Now that's what Micah is about, the Lord. His very name highlights that. In the original Hebrew, it's Micaiah. Me, who, Kai is like Yah, Yahweh. Micah literally means who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? The answer, of course, is nobody, which Micah throughout this book is out to show. I mean, if you flip to the end of the book, the last chapter of Micah 7, Micah closes the book with almost the exact question of what his name means. He asks in chapter 7, verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? This God, Micah declares, is incomparable. There is no one like him. And that's not his own personal es estimation of God. This is not Micah's personal assessment. No, Micah's words throughout this book about God and about how God will act don't come from within, but from without. He speaks as he's been spoken to. You see that even in the beginning of verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah. The Lord God of the universe who made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them is living and active. He is not mute like the little miniatures lining up the temples of the pagan people surrounding Israel and that sadly had come to be objects of worship in Israel. No, this God is not deaf or dumb. He speaks to Micah to speak to his people. And saints, this God is still speaking to us today. Thousands of years later, God is still speaking through his word. Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 12 tells us that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and a spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the conviction, saints, behind why we open up this ancient book week after week. Because we trust that it has an ever-living author and an ever-relevant word for us. In Micah's day, God spoke to Micah and showed him what was to happen concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. To give a 
brief walk through their history. God had rescued, you remember, the, the children of Israel from Egypt years before. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai to be his special people, to be faithful to him. He brought them into the land that he promised them, where he would dwell with them and where they were to worship him. But the people polluted the land by bringing the practices of other people into it, devoting themselves to their gods instead of to the true and living God. The breaking point was when Solomon, the wisest king in Israel's history, gave in to the folly of false worship. And as a result, God vowed to divide the kingdom, which he did. The northern kingdom comprised of 10 tribes will be known as Israel. And the southern kingdom comprised of two tribes will be known as Judah. Samaria was the capital city of the northern territory of Israel and Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern territory of Judah. Here, both are objects of God's attention, of his action, of his address through Micah. But it's not only them who are to listen to what God has to say. I mean, look at verse two. God calls all the peoples to hear, all the earth to pay attention. Friends, that's the appropriate posture we should have. If God is a God who speaks, then when he speaks, we should perk up and pay attention. But what do we expect God to say to us? What if the banners and signs that pl are plastered across many church lawns in America have any indication for us? It would seem that all God has to say to us is a word of encouragement. After all, God is affirming of any and every lifestyle and decision. Uh, his is a voice that always agrees and never confronts. He's the cool parent we all wanted as teenagers, who you just run your plans by, but who always says yes. He's more your ally than your authority. But is that what God is really like? Well, maybe in your mind, but not in the Bible. I mean, Micah tells the people in verse 2 that the Lord God is bearing witness against you. Friends, it's a wonderful thing to know and trust that God is for us, which he is in Christ. But it's a terrible thing when the omniscient, omnipresent God who knows all and sees all is not your advocate, but is your prosecutor leveling charge after charge against you. And this is a word of judgment. The Lord, Micah says, will come from his holy temple, from heaven, his holy place, and this holy God will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. It's as if God is marching out in war, destroying everything in his path. Specifically, verse 3 tells us that he's treading upon the high places of the earth. These high places where, were where uh, idol worship happened. The pagan peoples in the areas surrounding the promised land would, would choose the, the highest location, the most exalted places as worship sites for their deities. God had instructed the children of Israel to tear down such places when they came into the land. And over and over, in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, 
As kings are being labeled as either good or bad, largely they're being labeled those things based on their removal of these high places or they're allowing them to remain intact with their altars and their idols. These high places had become like Israel's plan 1B. If they couldn't get what they wanted from God in the way and the timing they wanted, through worshiping and sacrificing to him in the tabernacle, then they tow on over to these temples of the pagan deities. They put a little something down at the altar of Baal or Chemosh or Molech, just in case they might be able to help more speedily. They weren't so bold as to totally get rid of God, but sought to add another component to their worship rituals. But friends, as it relates to worshiping God, any addition is subtraction. But how often is it that we try to add something to simple trust in him? Our works, outside resources, other religions and their practices, only to find them all to be insufficient helps and find the, the, the hole that we sought to, to fill further widened and ourselves only further in trouble. God prescribes who should be worshiped, him alone, and how he should be worshiped. You know, it's striking that these supposed high places, exalted places where pagan worship would happen, that with these places, God has to look down, come down to tread upon them. It reminds you of Genesis chapter 11, where the people try to build a, a tower that reaches up to heaven. It's so high that they, they think they, they, they're feeling good about themselves. They want to make a name for themselves. They think it's high up in the sky. And the text tells us that God has to come down to look at their little weekend project. It's the same with these high places here. Yes, they're high, but God is higher. Yes, up there are these heathen temples, but further up there is God's holy temple. He dwells in the highest heaven. He comes down and he does what his people should have done. Destroy these false sites of worship and destroy his people's false hope in them. He was coming to show his supremacy over all competitors for worship. And just notice the intensity of the description of God's actions in verse 4. The mountains melt under him. The valleys split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down as a steep place. It all speaks of the fervor of God's fury. God in white hot anger is descending upon his people to destroy and nothing and no one will be able to withstand him, to resist him. Friends, I wonder, do you have a category for God like that? That certainly sounds different from the all-affirming, only loving God of modern-day American imagination. It sounds different from the God of 8th century Israel, Samaria's imagination. They assumed that regardless of how they lived or what they did, that God would be okay with them. After all, God had chosen them to be his special people. He put them in this land and promised to prosper them. It left them with a false sense of security. You know, the kind we find today behind such phrases as once saved, always saved. Since that's absolutely true. 
if you're saved. But so often we assume that we are saved and safe from God based on some past action. Walking down an aisle, signing some card, saying a prayer, getting wet in some water, regardless of our actions in the present. We assume that God is on friendly terms with us no matter how we live. That's ancient Israel. That's modern day us. How arresting then is it for God to commission this man Micah to speak a word to stop us all in our tracks? God is not pleased with you. Regardless of if you're at peace with yourself. Regardless if people at work are pleased with your performance. Kids, regardless of what classmates say about you. Regardless of any esteem that people online may have of you, the primary question that matters is, what does God think about you? Do you just assume his favor? Or have you stopped and deeply considered that question? What would be God's disposition towards you based on what you said and watched and texted and tweeted and deleted and thought just this past week, this past month, this past year? According to Micah, his message to Israel was that he was angry. Why? Well, verse 5 says explicitly what's already been hinted. For sin. Specifically, the sin of idolatry. All this, Micah says in verse 5, is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Uh, the capital cities of Samaria and Jerusalem were so wicked that they become bywords for sin. They are so filled with false worship that they become the very embodiments of idolatry. And notice the entire city of Jerusalem is called the high place of Judah. God's anger is not petty or capricious. It's not God flying off the handle for something minor. God's fury has been provoked by his people's spiritual adultery, by their infidelity, worshiping and serving other gods. And now it's at this point that, that people are further turned off from God. Not simply because he gets angry, but because of what he gets, ang gets angry about. In his book, Is God a Moral Monster? Paul Copen lists some prominent examples. The atheist, atheist Richard Dawkins is offended by this God who he claims breaks into a monumental rage whenever his people simply flirt with a rival God. A media mogul, Oprah Winfrey, claims she was turned off to the Christian faith when she heard a preacher once affirm that God is jealous. Well, that preacher that Oprah heard was just saying what the Bible says. I mean, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and through 5, in the Ten Commandments, God says that his people should have no gods before him, that they should not make any carved images or bow down to them or serve them. And the reason? 
for or because I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous because God loves. He is a committed lover. Show me a husband who wouldn't be jealous or angry if another man is sleeping with his wife. And I'll show you a husband who does not truly love his wife, is not truly committed to her. But God is a committed lover. And because he loves his people, he is angry when they reject him, the true and only good, and run off to things that will only harm them and not help them. They will only rob them of joy instead of satisfying them. God doesn't just break into rage when he finds his people flirting with a rival God, as Dawkins assumes. The problem is far deeper than flirting with rival gods. It's being unfaithful to the true and living God. For God to just coolly and calmly accept his people chasing after false gods would show that he didn't really value his claim as God all that much and wasn't really interested or invested in his people at all. But anger, a righteous anger, reveals a personal God who is supreme and who as creator and sustainer of everyone rightfully demands that those who he has made worship him alone. Samaria and Jerusalem didn't do that. They thought that they could two-time God, that they could get into a little entanglement with these pagan deities. But God would not have it. As a result of their idolatry, God turns his attention specifically to Samaria in verse 6 and says, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols. I will lay waste for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. All the shrines and the temples that the people of Samaria had built up, God would pull down. All the idols that the Samaritans had meticulously crafted, God would beat to pieces. All the wages that they'd use to even pay temple prostitutes. God would burn and all the idols that were crafted from the money paid to these temple prostitutes would be destroyed and recrafted for use by other pagan peoples. The money would have proven to be wasted. And this was the word that God spoke through Micah to Samaria. God is mad at you for your idolatry and God will judge you. But notice that God didn't just judge them at once. I mean, their idolatry deserved God's immediate wrath, just as all sin deserves immediate and instant death. But God spoke first through a prophet. For what purpose? To show his grace in awakening them of the danger of their idolatry and to cause them and call them to turn from it. Friends, that's the only reason you are alive today. God is showing his kindness and granting you more time to repent. Don't spend more time to do more sin. Use more time to show more, uh, 
confession and repentance and a turn from your sin. And don't wait. Do that today. Samaria didn't. They refused. Even with these threats from God on high, the people of Samaria continued in their ways. And God kept his promise. He judged them. He ransacked and flattened their land. He destroyed it. And he did so through the Assyrian army. In 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and demolished it and carried its inhabitants into exile. To the watching world, it seemed like just another instance, instance of the Assyrian army's increasing dominance. But through Micah, God's people and all those who would hear his word were to know a greater force behind Samaria's fall. God, not the Assyrians. And a greater cause for it than simply the Assyrians' lust for power. The Samaritans' lust for idols. I'm going to pull back the curtain a bit. Widen the focus of, of the lens a little and look upon our day. What does Micah have to say to us, to our culture? While America is not a modern-day Israel, our country has absolutely no claim as God's covenant people. There are some applications for us, I think, as a culture today. For one, I think it just shows us that a people who reject God's word and whose lives are filled with worshiping all sorts of other things can expect God's judgment. I mean, we want to be careful not to make one-to-one -one correlations as if we have special insight behind every event. But as we think about what happened to the capital city of Israel, Samaria, being ransacked and destroyed, does your mind perhaps dart to what happened on January the 6th in the capital city of America where people breached and ransacked the capital building, this bastion of American society and symbol of American democracy? I mean, that night on TV, we saw lawmakers on the Capitol floor from both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, talk about how this sacred place of American government had been violated and how horrible it was. And it was. We need to call it what it was. It was a crime. It was sin to do that. People who, who did the, that, those actions that day broke the law. They, they should not have done that. But as you heard lawmakers and other people talk, did you ever hear anybody ask, what was the ultimate cause behind these things? I never heard one person suggest that it may have been because of America's sin and God's judgment on our sin, on our idolatry. I mean, because as a people who so esteem democracy, what we really prize and celebrate isn't so much the rule of the people, but rather the rulership of the person. What I want and what I feel is ultimate. We've made idols of self and sex and satisfying every lust of ours to the neglect of God and his word. And yet we still ask God to bless America. That's a fine prayer to pray and we can pray that, but we should not expect that. Not when we turn away from God in worship and turn towards God in war. 
when we do that. What we should expect is not God's blessing, but God's curses, God's judgment. How much of the disintegration and chaos around us can be attributed not to the ethereal, intangible idea of the world going crazy, but to the more concrete and biblical category of God judging the world for going against him. But lest we find ourselves too keen to, to see the problems out there in the culture and God's judgment on it, we need to set our eyes in here upon the church because the applications from God's judgment on Israel are far more relevant to us as God's new covenant people. What might God be displeased with in us? What idols have we put up and promoted? Is it man-centered worship? Exalting internet preachers and podcast teachers above God's word and above those God has put around us in the local church? How sad it is to see in our day many people reverting back to the practices of first century Corinthian church, breaking into factions to follow this or that man or woman. What are the other idols that we might be in danger of, of being judged for? You know, I think over the past few years, many Christians have been exposed for idolizing political power or social acceptance. We've traded in morals in order to get this or that candidate in office at all costs. We've pledged our silence or our support for this or that person or organization in order to get a seat at the proverbial table. We've unquestionably accepted the latest slogans and ideologies of the day to be seen as reasonable and to avoid confrontation. We've made idols out of people and power, of comfort and conformity, and we need to be made aware of God's word to us this morning. He hates idolatry in his people, and he will judge idolaters, all of them. All of them who turn to idols will be judged. Which leads to our second point. Can anyone then escape God's judgment? Point number two, can anyone escape God's judgment? In a word, no, not if one continues in sin. And it's that reality that causes Micah to grieve in verses eight through nine. Now look there with me. He says, for, for this, for the judgment upon Samaria, I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Now notice a few things here. First, notice that though sin must be judged, judgment is not something to be glad about. The judgment of sinners is something to grieve over, especially when you know how terrible God's judgment is. I mean, just remember the intense descriptions of God's fury back in verse four. The mountains melt under him. The valleys are split open under his heavy hand. We, can, we should consider and emulate even God's attitude towards judgment. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 tells us that the Lord takes no pleasure 
in the death of the wicked. Neither should we take pleasure in their downfall. Micah mourns over the coming judgment on Samaria because verse 9 says the, the wound afflicted upon her is incurable. This judgment couldn't be stopped, but would rather spread down to Micah's own people, the people of Judah in the southern kingdom. kingdom. It, it has reached up to the gate of Jerusalem. Why? Because sin did not stop, but trickled down from Israel to Jerusalem. Such is the nature of sin. It spreads. Adam's sin of eating the forbidden fruit led to his blaming God for giving him the wife that he wanted and blaming Eve for giving him the fruit that he asked for. David's sin of sleeping with Bathsheba led to his murder of Uriah and his ultimate cover-up before Nathan exposed him. Sin spreads. It, it flows downstream. And because it does, because sin spreads so rapidly, so does God's judgment. Where sin is found, you can trust that God knows about it and that God will find it out. God will trace every drop of sin. He will judge every sin. He will inflict wounds on Israel and Judah who followed Israel's footsteps into idolatry. Though the people of Judah would see the northern kingdom fall into exile in, in 722, they did not turn away from mimicking their path. I mean, Judah should have acted like a younger sibling who after seeing an older brother disciplined by dad for doing certain things, seeks to avoid doing the same things and thus experiencing the same punishment, but not the people of Judah. Did they assume that they were better off than Samaria? That God would be more lenient to them? But if they did, they were misguided. And friends, so are we. If we think that God won't judge every single one of us. God is not like a grandparent whose disciplinary actions diminish over time. I mean, the things you got instant whoopings for from your mom or dad don't even warrant a mention from your parents when your kids do them. They just get sweet old grandma or grandpa who never pulls out that belt. Well, don't let that picture feed your ideas of God. He will not neglect to judge. The fierceness with which he judged Israel's sin of idolatry is the fierceness with which he will judge Judah's idolatry, is the fierceness with which he will judge our idolatry. Mourning. Mourning is the appropriate response to this kind of judgment, this kind of sin that leads to judgment. Saints, do you mourn over your sin? Do you mourn over the sins as you see them committed in our community or in our country? Or are you content with playing cultural commentator, offering pointed critiques of our society's waywardness, but never move to pity as you consider its plight? I mean, Jesus, even Jesus, as one who was a firsthand observer of the hardened and continued sins of his people and their rejection of God, he responded not by lobbing a barrage of criticisms, of fiery criticisms on the culture, 
but by lamenting over their sins. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you to, to, as a, to my people as a hen gathers her children, but you would not. See now that your house is left desolate. Saints, do you ever weep over sin? Ask God to show us the gravity of it, the gravity of sin and the gravity of judgment, and to give us hearts that genuinely grieve over sin in our own lives and in others' lives. Yes, tell people the truth about sin and judgment, but do so with hearts that break for them. There's reason for mourning. But there's also reason for rejoicing. Because the good news of the gospel is that though God's wounding of his people is incurable, though he will deal blows, this judgment doesn't have to fall on us, but on one who is judged in our place. Praise God that he sent his son to suffer for us. The wounds for sin that should have been inflicted on us were inflicted on Jesus, who willingly gave his life in our place. So that Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 tells us, by his wounds, we have been healed. God will judge our sin, but it doesn't have to be borne by us. He has judged Christ as our substitute. He died the death that we should have died and rose from the, the grave that we might be spared. What depth of God's mercy and of God's love. But it's only available to us if we do what Judah didn't do, what Samaria didn't do. Turn from our sinful ways and turn to God in repentance and faith. We do that when we confess our sins to God. We tell him we no longer want to live in bondage to them and instead trust in Christ to forgive them. Saints, you can do that this morning. You can be assured this morning and escape from God's judgment, but only through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. If you continue to walk in sin, however, the only thing you can be assured of is a certain coming judgment. I think we see that in verses 10 through 16. These various cities are listed in Judah that are coming under destruction. If you have time later on today, maybe go to those maps in the back of your Bibles that we never look at and see all these cities listed in the, the region of Judah. And with most of the cities in this section, Micah, in the original Hebrew, introduces a sort of wordplay with the city names to describe their disastrous fates. So, for instance, in verse 10, Bethlehaphra means house of dust. And Micah says, go roll yourselves in dust, an expression of intense grief for the coming misery. Or in verse 11, he addresses the inhabitants of Shafir, which means beautiful. But instead of showcasing their beauty, Micah says they'll go out in nakedness and shame. They wouldn't be helped by the inhabitants of Zanon, which in Hebrew sounds like the word for coming out. Instead of the people coming out to help their neighbors, the people of the land would not come out, Micah said, but be shut behind their walls for fear of being destroyed. In verse 12, the inhabitants of Marath, which means bitter. 
will anxiously wait for, for and long for something good and sweet, for peace and rest, but they won't find any. Why? Because disaster has come down from the Lord. In verse 13, Micah mentions Lachish, which was an important town in Judah and militarily the strongest in the land. They were one of the chariot cities that Solomon built up during his reign to provide a defense against outside attackers. Here, Micah calls it the beginning of sin. What he exactly means is not clear, but given the focus on chariots, perhaps what he means is that it was the place where the people of Judah first began to boast of and rely upon their own military strength instead of on God. We know it was a constant temptation. I mean, Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 tells us that some trust in chariots and some trust in horses instead of trusting in God. But in another play on words and another reversal of fortunes, Micah says this chariot city, Lachish, which sounds like the Hebrew word for steeds, would have these racehorses, these steeds harnessed to or attached to chariots instead of war horses. They need the swiftest horses to flee the coming danger, not the strongest forces to fight against it, because they could not win. Again, God was bringing disaster upon Judah. Or as he reminds the people of Marisha in verse 15, which sounds like the Hebrew word for to conquer, he was bringing a conqueror to it. Before, God had raised up his people to conquer the foreign powers. But now he was raising up foreign powers to conquer his people for their sin. It's what he'd promised to do if they broke his covenants and turned away from him. And friends, God always keeps his promises. It's striking that the two cities in this list in verses 10 through 16, that Micah doesn't do a word play with are the two cities that bracket the entire section. The first city listed Gath in verse 10, and the last city listed Adullam in verse 15. In fact, the phrase in verse 10, tell it not in Gath, is the exact phrase used back in 2 Samuel verse 20, where David is told that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And he laments their deaths, saying in verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on the high places. How the mighty have fallen, tell it not in Gath, lest the Philistines rejoice. It represented a low point in David's life, in the life of the people of Israel, as their first king, Saul, had been killed by the Philistines. And there was a sense of shame of ruin. And the last city there in verse 15, Adullam, too, finds importance in David's life. It's the place in 1 Samuel chapter 22, where David, who'd been anointed king but was awaiting that reality, was forced to flee from Saul and to hide in a cave with some of his men. It represented another low point in David's life. Why does Micah bracket off these two cities' fates with the mention of these uh, ten cities' fates with the, the fates of Gath and Adullam? I think to show that there is coming another certain low 
in the life of David's people, in the life of the people of Jerusalem. The glory days were coming to an end. God's people would be hunted, not by Saul, but by foreign powers, and they too would have to flee like fugitives. God makes Judah's end more explicit there at the end of verse 16. They shall go into exile. They had brought into the land all kinds of sin and idolatry, polluting it. So God would send forces to come and drive them out of the land, away from his presence. The southern kingdom of Judah would see these cities listed here all fall, one by one in 701 B.C. When the Assyrian king Sennacherib marched through the land conquering it. But God spared the capital city Jerusalem from being destroyed. The destruction came up to the gate of Jerusalem. But Hezekiah cried out to the Lord and he spared his people from destruction for a time. But sadly, the people continued in their sinful and idolatrous ways until God finally exiled his people to the Babylonians a century later. Friends, how will we respond to the certain declaration of God's judgment on sin? If God didn't spare Israel, didn't spare Judah, what makes us think that he will spare us? There's only one answer. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Friends, today is the day to turn from your sins and trust him alone so that God's judgment might fall on him and not on you and that you might find God's gracious offer of salvation in him. Tear down every idol in your life today, anything competing with worshiping God before God comes and tears you down for worshiping anything other than him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us a word of warning. We thank you that you love us so much that you don't send sudden destruction, but a word to turn us away from our sins. Lord, we thank you for the, the joy that we have knowing that the penalty that was due for us fell on Christ's head instead of ours. Lord, we pray that those who don't know him might know him this morning might put their trust in him this morning and turn from their sins and know the salvation from judgment. Uh, Lord, we pray that Christ would get glory through our giving our lives to him. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.